Richard Berner is a clinical professor of management practice at the NYU Stern School of Business. He was a counselor to the U.S. Treasury Secretary from 2011 to 2013, before becoming the first director of the department's Office of Financial Research. Today, he'll discuss the effects of the current crisis on the economy and his perspective on Washington's response. Let's listen in. We're delighted to have uh, a great economist with us today, uh, Richard Berner. Uh, 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 Richard is now uh, at the Stern School of Business um, in the Department of uh, Finance. Uh, he's also spent some time in Washington, D.C., where he was a counselor uh, to the Secretary of the Treasury uh, in, in 2011 to 2013. Um, and he was also the first director of the Office of Financial Research uh, from 2013 to 2017. Uh, prior to that, he had, uh, he had a career uh, as a well-respected Wall Street economist, where I first met him in the 80s, uh, when I was working in the research department at Solomon Brothers, uh, and Dick was a wise economist even back then. Uh, Dick's been a little bit, has been focused on uh, this crisis, what it means for the economy, and what we've seen out of Washington. And certainly with the uh, events of the last uh, 24 hours, it'll be great to hear his thoughts. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Dick Berner. Okay, thanks, Rob. Uh, and it's uh, great to be with you all. Thanks for the opportunity. And Rob, it's great to reconnect with you after so many years. Uh, since you've heard from Larry Kudlow, maybe I'll start with uh, using him as a foil. Um, like some others on this call, um, not uh, all that optimistic about the economy, not just in the second quarter, but uh, over a uh, somewhat longer term horizon. Um, and what I think is that uh, as we think about this health crisis, which has involved shutting most of the economy down, not just here, but globally, that creates supply and demand shocks. And I think uh, those are economics terms, but I can explain them. I think the bottom line on them is it's going to take a while for us to uh, to recover, notwithstanding the very substantial uh, relief that we've been getting from both monetary and fiscal policy, and not just here in the United States, but abroad. And the reason I say that is I, I think uh, that the path of uh, recovery in the healthcare crisis is going to be determined by the virus. But since there is no vaccine yet for the virus, that um, most of us are uh, adopting policies and trying to think about ways that we can buy time until a virus really does emerge. Until that time, it strikes me that uh, people are going to be very cautious. Most people are going to be very cautious. I would not say all, but most people are going to be very cautious about the way that they think about resuming life uh, as it was uh, before this crisis. And I think that um, there, that caution will extend to uh, economic activity uh, and other things. The second point that I think is important is that while the uh, both the Fed and other central banks uh, and fiscal policy have stepped up very significantly to help. Uh, in my view, that help is simply relief. It is not real stimulus, and you're not going to get real stimulus or have it be effective uh, until we start to resolve some of these uh, some of these issues. Um, I think it's absolutely important, and even in the latest bill that seems to be uh, just passed. Um, it's absolutely critical to provide federal aid to state and local governments for essential services, for equipment, um, and to think about 
uh, as the president himself described, that we're in a wartime environment, wartime powers as appropriate should be used uh, to provide material, equipment, people, and to provide safety. Um, and those things aren't happening to the extent that they, they might well. We're obviously providing a policy to fund sick leave, replace lost income, uh, and deter up with, uh, deferring obligations to pay bills, to provide loans and grants, to support affected people and businesses. Um, we have yet to see how we're preserving and strengthening economic infrastructure for recovery. And I think that's really important because if this uh, situation persists for uh, a couple more quarters, it will start to fray um, at our social compact. It will start to fray at our economic infrastructure remembering that our society really consists of relationships among people, businesses, governments, uh, and each other. Uh, and uh, to the extent that we can preserve that, uh, that will lay the, the groundwork for recovery. But if it starts to fray, it will make it much harder uh, for us to go forward. Um, so there are lots of specifics that we can talk about, uh, but I wanted to make those points because I think they are important in thinking about where we're going um, and what it's gonna to take to, uh, to get there. Um, so Rob, maybe that's a good point to open it up from question, for questions from you. I, I would just add actually uh, the fact that um, my colleagues and I at NYU are working in a very interdisciplinary way to focus on a, a lot of these issues. Uh, we've gathered together a group from uh, or groups, I should say, from across the university, from the School of Public Health, uh, in finance, economics, political science, law, uh, public policy, and elsewhere, uh, to try to bring in a very interdisciplinary way our, uh, our thoughts and, and skills on uh, thinking through some of these issues. So some of the things that I um, have learned, and I've learned a lot in the past uh, six or eight weeks, uh, reflect conversations and work with them. Well, that's great. Um, and, and we'll ask people maybe to raise their uh, hands in the, uh, in the Zoom session and we'll take some questions uh, there. But maybe I'll start with just a question about uh, sort of the sheer magnitude, right? Having, having watched the Fed in the markets for a long time, you know, seeing them come out with Three trillion or seven trillion, if you want to sort of credit some of the leverage in the in the system, uh, so quickly. And as you said, that seems to be a plug the gap. Uh, there's more stimulus coming. Uh, you know, when do we have to worry about the sort of long term implications of, of printing money at that pace, or is there no is there no worrying yet because we have no other choice? Well, I think that's right, Rob. We don't have an, another choice in this environment. And others, as I mentioned, are doing the same thing. So this is a global uh, downturn. Uh, the supply piece of it reflects the shutdown that many um, economies, including ours, are going through. Um, if you look at the IMF's latest uh, outlook, uh, frankly, I think they're a little conservative. But, um, you know, we could see global growth contract by at least 3% this year, if not a, a lot more. Another quarter like this will mean 6%. We haven't seen anything like that since the Great Depression. The unemployment rate in the United States uh, could easily rise to 20% in the next two months. 
Um, and we haven't seen anything like that since the Great Depression. Those um, kinds of, of uh, you know, changes mean more than just economics, more than just people in stress. They also have uh, substantial uh, societal and geopolitical implications. And I think we have to think about the implications of those things. But I think what one of the things you're alluding to is we're going to be running massive budget deficits on the order of 15 to 20 percent of GDP. Clearly, I haven't seen that since the Second World War. Um, we're going to be expanding the Fed's balance sheet already at six trillion dollars massively. Does all this money printing um, have uh, untoward consequences? I'd be much happier if some of the programs the Fed has waded into, and I admire their agility, their courage, um, and their creativity. And you know, many of the people who are doing that are people I know personally uh, and have known for a long time. Um, and I would probably do the same thing, but I, I think that uh, as we think about some of these uh, programs, particularly those where the Fed is taking a lot of credit risk, it would be great if we could transfer those programs to the national balance sheet, to the treasury uh, in fairly short order, because setting a precedent for the Fed to pick winners and losers and to get involved in credit allocation to this extent, I think uh, sets a, a precedent that I'd rather not go to. Great, well, let me, uh, let me open it up to some other questions. Maybe I'll ask Jim Frank to, uh, to take the first question. Okay, you got it. Uh, you started out your comments by saying, re referring to a vaccine and the probability that we won't really get back in full swing until the vaccine is developed. But there are a number of viruses that, for which we've never found a vaccine. I'm just, wondering, I'm just wondering, are you thinking about what we would do if we don't get a vaccine in 12 to 18 months? That's a terrifying thought, but, um, and you're absolutely right, Jim. You know, we... Um, have not developed vaccines even for the common cold. Um, and we repeatedly get uh, common colds um, and we have developed vaccines for the flu, but you know, lots of people come down with the flu each year. The flu morphs and mutates. We need new vaccines, we develop them. Um, we try to limit the damage, but significant numbers of people, not the numbers that we're already seeing with this uh, virus, die from the flu. So the issue here is uh, that this virus has a couple of things, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but um, I have spoken with many of them um, that seem to be salient uh, in thinking about it. One is um, it's highly contagious. Two is that um, people can be carrying the uh, the virus without showing any symptoms. They are asymptomatic. And so they can spread uh, the, uh, the virus um, and people be unaware of that. And three, it, it also seems to have a lot of consequences, not just for res respiratory illness, but for other parts uh, of the body, kidneys, for example, or lungs or heart that may have long-term consequences. So I think the upshot of that, at least as a person who um, you know, might be more vulnerable because of my age uh, than, uh, than the median of the population, 
is to be quite cautious about uh, where I'm going and what I'm doing. And uh, I think the result of that is that it's going to really change our lives. And for businesses, it's going to change business models, um, perhaps in some cases permanently. Great. Why don't we go next to John Martin for the question? Thanks, Rob. And Dick, thank you for joining us today. Uh, truly appreciate your insights. Uh, I was on a call just earlier this afternoon talking about the uh, the dollars that are being allocated to small businesses as part of the the latest uh, legislation. And the estimate on the call, and this is a public policy shop in DC, the estimate on the call was that those dollars allocated as part of this legislation will likely be soaked up within the first 36 to 72 hours of that program opening. Yeah. Which just speaks to the overwhelming demand for these dollars. So since Congress has basically already said that they will not address anything as it relates to 4.0, if you will, uh, until they reconvene in early May, you know, what, what happens to small businesses that are left left at the uh, at the altar here without having access to these funds? Uh, that's a very good question, um, John. And I, I think uh, one of the problems that you've obviously seen reporting on is the fact that a lot of businesses who got access in the first round, and maybe they'll get in the second round, we're not, we're not sure, were um, rather medium-sized rather than small-sized businesses. And one notable example of that is Shake Shack, which agreed that it was going to give back the money that it obtained in the first round. Um, so I think that in this particular, in the second phase of uh, the PPP program uh, and the EDIL program, which is the emergency loan program of the Small Business Administration, there were some set-asides that uh, Congress put in for community banks on the theory that they have better relationships with smaller businesses um, and, uh, and the like. There, there's a, uh, another way to look at this program as well, um, which is, you know, we've got 6,000 banks in the United States, ranging from the very large uh, to the very small. Um, and those banks, most of them, at least by numbers, are located in communities. There may be banking deserts where people don't have access to banking services uh, directly. But it's, it strikes me that maybe another way to do this would have been uh, to uh, have the government take a first loss position in loans extended by the banks, or even to backstop them. Um, and the government's exposure, therefore, would have been uh, the losses, rather than try to use uh, a balance sheet to extend credit and run out of funding and have to renew it four or five or six times. Um, and, you know, the, the banks could be more a more effective distribution system. In addition, uh, fintechs have uh, stepped up and are starting to get access to uh, the distribution network. Um, and they can be uh, also recruited to help out in this. And I think that the combination of those things might uh, help the program to do a better job. My colleagues actually have written an op-ed in Market Watch about this, uh, where they argued for targeting. Maybe some combination of targeting and backstopping would be a, you know, a way to uh, to solve this problem because 
look, we've got um, a, a large number, half the workforce, roughly speaking, 48% is employed in small business. And of course, that's a, maybe a generous definition. But, um, you know, these people, uh, many of them are in services, restaurants. We have 26,000 restaurants in New York alone. Uh, we are actually working with the restaurants to try to help our students help uh, some of the smaller restaurants develop business plans, navigate uh, the labyrinth of, of the application process for these loans, and, um, and to think about how they want to change their business models in the future so that they can survive. Those are some needed ingredients besides the financing, I think, uh, that can help some of these small businesses. Thanks. Uh, maybe we'll go to Maxine Clark. Maxine? Um, so I, I have a question regarding um, the quantity of people that have come uh, into this disease uh, versus other countries. And is how do your public health friends that you're working with at NYU and at Columbia feel that that is a result of not having a national health care program or some way to make sure that our population isn't sick before something like this comes along, or at least generally better? And what can we do about that in the future? Do you think there's a window of opportunity for us to develop an, uh, some kind of a sensible uh, nationwide health care plan? Well, that's a deep question, Maxine. I, I, you know, I don't know we have time to answer all facets of it, but just simply put, um, I think the crisis has exposed some of the weaknesses in our healthcare infrastructure in a variety of ways. Uh, you point to one, um, which is um, we don't have a national strategy for dealing with pandemics or infectious disease. Second, uh, because uh, you know we have such a heterogeneous and geographically dispersed population, sometimes it's very difficult to get healthcare uh, to those populations. Telemedicine may be uh, one solution to that in peacetime. Um, in wartime, there may be other solutions that we need to adopt, uh, thinking of it as a real wartime uh, kind of environment. Uh, the third thing is, um, you know, while many people are happy with the, their healthcare uh, plans, uh, it's pretty clear that we still have uh, people who don't have access to healthcare. Um, and the healthcare issue uh, is, like it or not, I think um, the interplay between our healthcare issues, our inequality issues, uh, the way that we provide healthcare in this economy. Uh, and in our society, those are all, uh, I think some of the weaknesses in, in those things are all being uh, exposed by this crisis. Now you could say we've never uh, experienced anything like this in our lifetimes, and that's certainly true, um, but uh, there are lots of people who have been thinking about pandemics uh, since SARS appeared in 2002, almost 20 years ago. Um, and in fact, uh, at the federal level and at various state levels, there are uh, public officials have been thinking about it. In our global school of public health, people have been thinking about it. Uh, and so um, I think that they would point to some of the factors that I would mention. I'm not a healthcare expert, even though I've studied it through economics for a long time, but I, I do think that uh, you know the way that we uh, provide healthcare access, the fact that 18% of GDP is spent on healthcare with outcomes that are only as good as or even inferior to countries that spend half as much relative to their economic output. 
uh, I think really is a striking statistic that we have long neglected and need to pay more attention to. Thanks. Let's, uh, let's go to Fred, uh, Fred Zeidman. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Uh, you know, I, I, I got my MBA at Stern. Great. So, but uh, somehow I think I missed the class where they talk about uh, how long this, these cycles uh, uh, should last. Given the magnitude of uh, this stimulus package and given whatever behavior, uh, uh, consumer behavior patterns are filtered in, how long uh, would you anticipate that it will take, uh, given the amount of money, and to filter through the economy and to get some semblance of normality back into consumption patterns and normal economic activity? Well, I started my comments, uh, you know, by alluding to that, Fred, and I think the issue from my standpoint is um, when is that caution that I talked about going to start to diminish? When are people going to feel more confident about doing the things that they used to do? If you think about the idea that perhaps in the second quarter, we shut down a quarter of economic activity, um, and that may be a conservative estimate given uh, the uh, share of our economy that's devoted to travel, leisure, uh, and uh, services, which involve uh, relatively close contact. Um, if we do that just in the second quarter, that means that the economy will contract at an annual rate of 75%. Um, and if we think about what, you know, recovering from a 25% shutdown of the economy looks like um, and the spillovers to the rest of the economy, um, I think it's going to take longer than, um, than most people expect. And that's why these stories about um, arguing over whether it's a a V-shaped or U-shaped uh, recovery, I think, missed the point that I made to start with, which is when are we going to get confidence back uh, by businesses and by, uh, by consumers that, uh, you know, we can start to resume the things that we uh, have done before. And what scares me the most is uh, that some of the steps that are being taken in some jurisdictions now run the risk of having uh, a revival of the virus. Even in Singapore, which is a relatively authoritarian society compared with ours, um, and having, you know, they went through the experience of SARS. And so the prime minister was on TV about three weeks ago saying, you know, we, we were really prepared for this. We knew what to expect. We shut things down. We did all the right things. And it looked like they did. They flattened the curve and it started to decline they're starting to see a resurgence of, uh, of cases. So unfortunately, the world is a very interconnected place. Our, uh, our country is a very interconnected place. When you have people traveling from one part to another, whether they're wearing masks, whether they're using gloves, whether they're taking precautions, there is always a risk that some of these things uh, will still trickle through and, and escape our best efforts to uh, to try to stop them. Um, and those are the kinds of things that I'm not an expert on, but which I think that ought to make many of us cautious about uh, thinking about how fast this comes back. Let's go to Lee White. Obviously, we've seen 
the consequences of virus on income inequality and income insecurity in our country has exposed a lot of uh, concerns by so many people about their ability to provide for themselves. And we have a presidential election on the horizon and, uh, and whether it's President Biden or President Trump, what would your advice be about both uh, so-called safe social safety net programs like unemployment insurance or minimum wage, as well as federal tax policy, given the gigantic deficits that you've referred to earlier? Great question, Lee. Um, it is clear that this crisis has exposed uh, a lot of the frailty and vulnerability in our safety net. You mentioned unemployment insurance alone. Back in January, the Tax Policy Foundation uh, published a map showing that um, more than half of our unemployment insurance trust funds were uh, less than 50% funded. Um, and uh, Governor Cuomo said the other day, I think it was yesterday, that New York needed $4 billion in order to pay out the uninsurance, uh, the employment insurance benefits uh, that were promised. Um, so there is a lot of weakness uh, in uh, that part of the safety net, and that's one of the stronger parts. Uh, there are many other parts that uh, really we need to think hard about. Um, and, you know, I think that they extend so broadly that, um, and the, their connection to some of our other issues, inequality was here a long time, uh, deep inequality was here a long time before this shock exposed uh, some of those problems. Uh, and uh, I think we need to think hard about uh, what we're going to do uh, about inequality. I don't believe that uh, there are easy solutions to these things. I don't believe that they will happen quickly. I think we need to invest um, in human capital through education. I think we need to invest in our healthcare infrastructure, both in terms of access uh, and cost. Um, I think we need to invest in uh, our uh, in, in an education, not just in uh, spending more money on it, but in thinking about education uh, as part of our society where uh, many uh, low-income families get, uh, you know, they get food at lunch for their kids. Uh, they have a place which is safe for their kids to be in. Um, they can get nurturing and support. Um, and I think of education as something that uh, is a, a partnership among parents, teachers, and students. Uh, and the parents, we have to think about ways to support the parents so that they, they can be involved. This is gonna be a long-term uh, process to, um, you know, to fix that part of the safety net. Um, 16 years ago, uh, when I was at another firm, not the one that Rob and I worked at together, uh, Morgan Stanley, I wrote something called America's Long-Term Challenges. Um, I think many of them are still out there for us to try to meet, and I'll be happy to share those things with you. And federal tax policy? Well, you know, in the past three years, we've uh, been, we've had embraced the philosophy in our tax policy to, uh, to cut taxes, um, and uh, particularly to uh, uh, orient tax policy towards uh, competitiveness. There's nothing wrong with uh, orienting it that way, but we also need to have uh, not just tax policy, but a budget strategy 
that gets us to a sustainable fiscal policy um, and one that uh, helps to fund uh, in particular that, uh, that safety net because in addition to changing changes in society and attitudes, it's gonna really take some, uh, some investment to do that. Uh, so I think the tax policy has to be oriented in that direction. Uh, and it means for a lot of people that taxes are gonna go up. Let's go to Carla Odell. Yes, it's probably, to, oops, thank you. That the Republic, uh, recovery is probably going to be fueled by, by demand and that there's the cautious consumer and cautious whether business or in consumer will slow that down. What do you think could be done to increase demand? And do you think we're going to see some major changes in the way supply chains operate? And others on the call may have some thoughts about that as well. Sure. Good question, Carla. Look, I, I don't think that the things that we're doing now, as I mentioned before, are really supportive of uh, <clears throat> demand or, or boosting it. I think they are supportive of uh, limiting the economic damage that many are facing because they are out of work or because their businesses are shut down and they don't have revenue um, or because uh, you know what we've got now is a much less efficient way uh, of conducting economic activity. Um, and frankly, as I mentioned, because people are hesitant to engage in a number of things uh, and activities. So demand stimulus will start to work when people are more confident about their ability to get back to um, either what we had or some new normal uh, in which business models uh, do change. That's why I emphasize it's both uh, things on the supply and demand side. Um, to your point about supply chains, uh, some people would say, well, this just underscores the need to have everything produced at home and having global supply chains uh, is something that's very dangerous. Um, I think that uh, having global supply chains run in the way that we've run them can be dangerous in a world of, uh, of pandemics. And so we're going to be thinking about how to run a supply chain either nationally or, uh, or globally. Uh, in a way that keeps us protected. We just signed a new trade agreement with Canada uh, and Mexico called the USMCA, uh, which creates supply chains or which preserves them uh, among our three countries. And um, I think that, uh, you know, that takes advantage of a lot of uh, regional and, uh, and national diversity uh, among our three countries. Um, and should therefore be beneficial for all three countries. But we're gonna have to lay on top of that a way to make sure uh, that there's a safety and protection in that kind of commerce and in those kinds of supply chains uh, that makes sense. Thanks. Uh, let's go to uh, Stamen Ogilvy. Among US states that have uh, uh, urban areas of consequence, it would appear that Georgia and Florida are the first two to really tilt the balance uh, politically from uh, worrying most about health to worrying most about economics. Uh, the question is, does your task force at NIU, NYU view all of that as uh, uh, worrisome, as uh, interesting, uh, or as uh, uh, an excellent laboratory for us to uh, examine how those trade-offs work. And 
when you think about the trade-offs and are watching them, uh, how will you monitor the interaction of uh, COVID uh, problems against uh, uh, state national or state product uh, economic growth? Great question, Stamen. Thank you. Um, you know, let me take the last part of it first. Um, I wish we had better ways of monitoring that, uh, but we don't uh, because of the nature of this virus uh, that is so hard to track and tracking its spread is, is not easy. Um, just as a statistic, Scott Gottlieb yesterday said that he thinks, uh, and many other epidemiologists and, and healthcare providers agree that the number of cases in the United States could easily be 10 times what is being reported. Uh, which would make sense given the mortality rate that we've seen uh, in the statistics, because most people think that uh, the mortality rate in the flu is something like 0.1, 0.2%. In this, it could be uh, five or 10 times higher than that, or 1%. And so it makes sense given those statistics that we actually have 10 times the number of cases that are being uh, reported. So given that, it makes it very difficult to track these things. And so we've there's been a lot of talk about uh, tracking. There's been a lot of talk about uh, developing uh, ways of testing uh, for um, uh, immunity and, and other things. And if we can develop those quickly, then that will help us with the, uh, with the tracking. Those aren't foolproof either, uh, because even in, in places like uh, Singapore, where they have some tracking, uh, it's been not easy for them to do all of that. Places like Taiwan, which have probably done the best job of it, um, you know, we could look to them as a model for how to do things. It's not clear to me in our society that, uh, you know, a lot of people would kind of go along with that kind of what they see of an, as an intrusion into their uh, into their personal freedom and their and their privacy. Let me get to the other part of the question. Um, you know, I said that our economy is interconnected. And just because we have state borders and state laws doesn't mean uh, that, um, you know, people can't go from Jacksonville to uh, Brunswick, Georgia in a heartbeat. Nobody checks, uh, you know, where they're traveling. You don't have to present a passport at the border. Uh, I know the governor of Florida did set up, um, uh, you know, checks for people who are traveling from this area, the New York area to uh, to Florida at one point. Um, I'm not sure that's still in place, but generally speaking, we allow freedom of movement across state borders and they don't really represent uh, a, a check on uh, economic or other kinds of activity. So it's very difficult uh, to understand what the impact of uh, opening up Georgia, for example, is gonna look like without knowing how Georgians will travel to other places and how people will come into Georgia, uh, you know, from other places. Georgia's got a lot to offer or certainly did before this crisis hit as a place to visit. Um, and there are a lot of good businesses there. Uh, the question is how will consumers and businesses respond to Georgia opening up, um, you know, from the outside? How will they, uh, you know, relate to doing commerce with, directly with, with people in Georgia Will they double down on their efforts to stay uh, protected or will they embrace what Georgia is doing? So you asked whether it would be a laboratory. 
it, uh, my hope is that it could be a good laboratory for understanding some of these things. My fear is that um, it will turn out to be less than benign. When you think as a, when you sort of are a business owner, uh, you know, thinking about restarting your business, you, you know, you have to do a lot of things. You have to make your employees confident. You have to make your customers confident. Sometimes you have to make your customers customers confident. Um, how do you think, you know, business owners can think about that and help convince people that there'll be safety? Well, it's a great question. I think, uh, you know, um, part of it depends on the nature of the business. If we're talking about a restaurant at one extreme, where uh, in uh, densely populated areas where people have sat in the past right next to each other, it's pretty clear that business uh, models are going to change. The restaurant owners, uh, many of them uh, are starting to talk about six feet apart from tables, whether or not that really works as a business model for them, uh, whether or not they're going to take people's temperature or whether or not they will uh, have certain requirements for coming into the restaurant and, and uh, whether or not they will shift their business models more to uh, to take out, as some of them are doing in the midst of this crisis, uh, or to uh, other ways of providing their services. Um, it, it just seems to me that all that is going to uh, really depend on uh, how confident we are in uh, being able to get back to doing some of the things that uh, that we did before. It's going to be easier in other kinds of businesses. Uh, for example, in a factory where a lot of the automation meant that people didn't have to be all that close together. And if they wear masks and appropriate protective equipment, uh, they take precautions uh, and uh, do things that uh, make sure that people, the employees have confidence that they're protected from the potential that uh, their neighbor, somebody 12 feet away might be a carrier of a, uh, of a of a virus, then that makes it much easier. So it's going to vary from business to business. Um, and I think that, you know, the other things to think about are, what about sports events where you have 200,000 people in a stadium um, or around a racetrack? What about, uh, you know, uh, the performing arts um, where, uh, you know, people love to gather for, you know, face-to-face -face or real uh, live performances. Um, how are we going to uh, experience those things? And I know the people involved in those businesses are thinking hard about them. Right now, they've responded by providing alternative media through which people can participate. Um, but, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to be learning a lot as we go along with this. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, there'll be a lot of creativity uh, involved in trying to meet these challenges. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things we welcome the opportunity to do is to think about uh, what that looks like. I just mentioned one more business, Rob, Please. that I think is, is pretty important that it was already, you know, down uh, um, and on its knees, if you will. The sort of brick and mortar retail businesses who have been affected dramatically by online commerce. Um, and I just don't think that a lot of those businesses are gonna survive. I think that if they have a digital marketing strategy uh, that helps them uh, embrace new ways of, of providing goods and services, 
then they can survive. But even there, I think that they're going to have to be pretty creative about the way that they, the way that they provide those, uh, those services. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think we're going to look back and, and, and see a whole bunch of sectors of our economy in five years hence and talk about some changes probably that occurred driven by, you know, driven by the events we're living through right now. Yeah. And, and maybe one more, this doesn't have much to do with people with face-to-face contact, but um, just in terms of current events, the, one of the ironies of this whole situation is you think about the collapse in demand for energy and what it's doing to fossil fuels um, and their prices. Um, and, you know, this may well be ironically something that represents the sunset or at least sundown uh, for, um, you know, parts of the fossil fuel industry, because it's pretty clear that they're losing money rapidly uh, with um, oil prices and fuel prices where they are. Um, and that may be the strongest incentive, uh, you know, that we've ever seen to make a transition to alternative energy sources. Great. Well, Dick, I know you had a hard stop at uh, at uh, quarter of, and so I want to respect that. Um, but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts uh, with our group of business leaders. Um, and it was really, uh, I think, a great perspective. Thank you very much, Robin. Let me just say uh, two things. One, first, thanks for the opportunity. Um, you know, and I'm sure there were lots of questions that did not get answered. So if you folks want to forward them uh, to me. A second, um, you know, I agreed to do this because I've heard a lot of great things about no labels. And so welcome the opportunity to engage with you further. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is um, check out uh, the work that we're doing uh, at the institute that I co-direct, the Volatility and Risk Institute, because we're trying to look at these issues and to understand how people can um, manage their risks hedge their risks, construct portfolios that uh, reflect the management of those risks and help uh, develop financial instruments to transfer those risks from people who don't want them to people who, who do want them. As Dr. Berner explains, the path of economic recovery is entirely dependent on containing coronavirus, which itself is dependent on the development of a vaccine. Until a vaccine comes along, Dr. Berner thinks the public will be cautious with its spending. In the meantime, he thinks government needs to step up with much more impactful stimulus, as he believes the Federal Reserve can only do so much. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.